common resolutions, New Year's resolutions that are made year in and year out, pretty much don't change year in and year out. It's pretty much the same ones that are made um, that every year, uh, every January, every late December, we see the same thing, the same list. Um, they, go, they go something like this. Here's your, your top ten, roughly speaking. Um, get organized. Help others. Learn something new. Get out of debt. More family time. Enjoy life more. Quit drinking. Lose weight. Quit smoking. And exercise. And by that, I don't think they mean quit exercise. I think they mean actually start the exercise. Um, so that's the most common list. That's the list of most common resolutions that are made. You know what's interesting? Is that other statistics, other studies that are done regarding the most common resolutions broken, they're almost the same list. The ones that, are most com that we most commonly make are also the very ones that we most commonly break. And because of that, there can be, and oftentimes is, a great deal of cynicism regarding the whole enterprise. We say to ourselves individually and collectively, well, you know, I, I, I can't do this. I haven't been able to do this. I've done nothing but failed and floundered at this, and so why try? We then become jaded and then give up on the whole thing. Resolutions, goals of any kind, whether it comes to not just New Year's, but now we're talking the rest of the year because we're cynical, because we're jaded towards any, any hope of striving and moving forward. Well, I have a question for you. Is that really the best response? Is, is it really the best response just to completely throw out the idea because we've failed at it? Or could there be, maybe, is it possible, and as I said earlier in the service, this is not a rhetorical question, is it possible that the gospel might say something something helpful to this issue of resolutions and goals. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd urge you to turn with me now to James chapter 4. Uh, James 4, if you're trying to find it in the New Testament, uh, your biggest landmark is the book of Hebrews, and James comes one book to the right. Okay, so Hebrews is your big book. Try and find that there in the New Testament. If you're trying to find that, it's after a whole bunch of Paul's letters that start with the letter T. Okay, Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus, Philemon gets stuck in there. Then you got Hebrews and James. Okay, so James 4, verses 13 through 17. Um, this is really sort of the, the uh, touchstone text as to where I, I want us to, to think on and, and contemplate and consider. James 4, verses 13 through 17. Hear now God's word. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, so... Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him is sin. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, there is certainly much that is said um, this time of year regarding 
uh, reflections on a, on a year past and anticipations on a year to come. And sometimes that gets uh, very personal as we start thinking about our own lives and, and things that we would like to see change. And uh, we know that, that really you are in the business of change, not for yourself, but for us. And we thank you that you never change, but we thank you that the God who never changes is in the business of renewing and changing his people and making us to conform more and more to the image of Jesus. And uh, that's our desire, that's our, our longing, though it, ought, it isn't as it ought to be, as much as it ought to be. Um, we pray that you'd help us in this. We need your wisdom and counsel and understanding and uh, heart. Speak to us now, we pray. Amen. There is a, uh, a rich, long-standing history to this concept of New Year's resolutions. Believe it or not, the Babylonians would make promises and vows to their God at the beginning of every new year. Yeah, it goes back at least that far. The Romans would do much the same to their own gods. In the medieval period, we uh, have records of, of knights taking what was called the peacock vow. Now, I didn't have time to find out what the heck was that, but it has to do, I know with this, with the renewal of the vows of chivalry. At least that much. Uh, there are traditions in the church still today that have what's referred to as the watch night service. And maybe some of you are familiar with this, where on, on New Year's Eve, there is a time spent of intensive prayer and reflection and renewed promises regarding the coming year. Well, it's not just, though, in the big stuff. It's not just that you see this impulse towards resolutions in history and in traditions, but I think it's fairly clear, if you just think about it, that we also see it as just an everyday, normal impulse as well. Now, granted, through, through the history, this is a kind of a, of a bridge here, you, you do see individuals who uh, had resolutions. Jonathan Edwards was certainly one. Maxims that they would live by and write these things down, and these were the principles, and it was kind of an everyday thing. It was not just a New Year's Eve kind of deal. Um, going beyond that, today we know that you know we, we you have to have resolve, you have to have these goals, you have to be willing to set a target and, and figure out how you're going to take. Okay, the Olympics, right? The Winter Olympics are are very close. Um, we've heard some news, some very sad news of some things going on, some attacks uh, taking place over in, in Russia right now. Um, but Olympic athletes, right? If you're going to strive to for excellence and those kinds of things, you have to have resolve. You have to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be willing to, to make, set these goals and these plans and for, for attainments long, long off into the future. We ordinary mortals, right, have, we, we find ourselves taking vows, promises, resolutions, if you will, not just at New Year's, all through the year. You say to yourself, okay, I need to do this. So I'm going to do that. I need to do this. So I'm going to shift uh, tack the sails in this direction, that kind of thing. My point being that whether you think about this from a historical standpoint, or whether you think at this impulse, or whether you think about it from an everyday standpoint, there is within the human heart, in all of us, somewhere in there, a longing and an aspiration deep for more. For more than what is. There is a, you can even call it a holy discontentment within us. 
it, it can't help but be that because we are made in God's image, made according to His likeness. So there's a sense in which we can't help but long for more, especially as we go through life and we find ourselves bumping up against and colliding with the frustrations and the futilities of experiencing less all the time. We long for more. We experience far less. And what comes out of that is resolutions and goals. It's my, my point being, this idea, whether you want to think about it in terms of New Year's or all through the year, resolutions and goals and planning is normal, it's understandable, it's even laudable, it's commendable. In some cases, you can even say it's vital and necessary, depending on what you're talking about. Pushing this further, let me just put it this way. We've been made to make resolutions and goals. We've been made to make resolutions and goals, but we must make them in accord with the one who's made us. Okay? We've been made to make resolutions and goals, but we must make them in accord with our maker. They, in and of themselves, they are good and right. There's nothing wrong with them, but they must fit according to God's design and his intentions for us. But not just what they are in terms of the goals and the resolutions, but how we go about them. And both are vital to keep yoked together. Not just the what, but the how, and I would even say the why as well. Well, let's take a look at this. We've got uh, two points in your outline. Uh, for a few minutes, I want to just uh, think about this together. First, talk about the motivations. The motivations behind the resolutions. Why are we doing this? What's the impulse? What's driving it? And then the second thing, the means, that is, how, um, how are we going about this? All right, the first thing being the motivations. Why? What's driving this? For the Christian, those resolutions, those goals, again, whether it's New Year's or any other time during the year, must always be done first out of a spirit of gratitude. Never out of fear. Never out of a sense of dread of what's going to be withheld um, or what might happen to us, what God might do to us if we don't improve in some area or straighten out. That can, that is such, that's not just a sub-Christian motivation. That is an anti-Christian motivation. That fear. The Christian understands the message of the gospel is so clear on this point that we have no need to dread. We have no need to fear God withholding something if we don't straighten out or improve in some area. In fact, we have the liberty and security of knowing that it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if I never improve or if I never straighten out. You know what that means? It makes me want to. Understand? My, my standing with him, your, the Christian standing with God in Christ is so secure because of the finished work of Jesus. It doesn't matter what you ever do. It never matters what you do, which then makes you want to do. You, your life is, is then becomes an explosion, an expression of relief and thanksgiving and gratitude of all that he has done for you, all that he is doing for you, and all that he has promised yet to do for you. And you then long to make the whole of yourself an expression of gratitude and thanks to him. Never, never, never fear. 
That doesn't belong in the equation whatsoever. That's the first thing. That's the first motivation. Gratitude. The second is this. Glory. And by that, I do not mean ours. I do not mean that our resolutions, our striving, our goals, what we're trying to attain to and accomplish can never be driven by, as a Christian, can never be driven by the praise and honor and accolades that we can accumulate and manipulate that we receive from others. It can never be about that. Our motivation in terms of glory is not ours, but His. We desire not for for others to look and see us, but to look and see Jesus through us. That's the motivation. Gratitude, then glory. We long to be like, and this was, uh, I mentioned Jonathan Edwards earlier, this is actually an image that he uses. We long to be like polished mirrors ever more faithfully reflecting the brilliant glory of the sun. That should be our longing. That should be what's driving any resolution, any plan, any goal, whatever it may be. Whatever, you know, pick any of those on that list. The why behind any of those on that list and any other that you make has to be about gratitude and glory. This is so vital for us to think about, so vital for us to to consider this idea of motivations for, for two reasons. One, the default mode of the human heart is to do things out of fear and for our own glory. That's our default mode. And I would go so far as to say I think that's one of the reasons why there's here's the darker side as to why there's such a human impulse to make resolutions. It's one of the reasons why you see it with the Babylonians and the Romans and in the medieval period and in the church still today. The motives can be really skewed here because we're doing it out of fear and doing it out of a longing for our own own glory. It's so vital that we think about this. Why are we doing what we're doing? Not just what are we doing, but why are we doing what we're doing? I would say there's another reason why it's so critical for us to think about this, and that is what you can find is at the end of the day, after you've sorted through and prayed through and wrestled through, what ought I to be striving towards and why ought I to be striving towards it, what you may find is yourself doing the exact same things as everyone else around you, but for very, very different reasons. Very different reasons. And that's good. That's good. Think with me. Here's an analogy. Think with me about this. Let's say you're on a road trip, okay, and you come up to one of those interstate rest stops, and, and you're there because you're traveling for the holidays, right? But there's a gazillion other cars there, and everyone's in the same place but for a completely different reason. You're there because you're making you're on a road trip for the holidays. There's another car over there, and they're on their way to a funeral. Or you've got a trucker over here, and he's just trying to make the, the next stop. He's just, you know, there to, to, to catch his breath, catch a nap, and he's on his... Or, or maybe it's not even laudable reasons. Maybe it's, maybe it's a drug run. Maybe it's one of those, you know, uh, dark-colored, uh, darkly-tinted windows or whatever, you know, the vehicle. It's something coming up from Florida, and it's moving north, and it's not good. Or maybe it's an illicit meeting, Right? 
that's been arranged to take place at this. You get the idea. All these people there at the exact same place for very different reasons. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are regarding this new year and, or if you even care to think about resolutions, but if you are, or if you even have an inkling to consider this, what are they? That's the first question we need to be asking. What are they? And why? Why do you want to do that? You know, Christian Ethics 101, the right, doing the right thing for the wrong reason, you know what that equals? The wrong thing. Doing even the right thing for the wrong reasons still equals the wrong thing. So we need to think through not just the thing, but the reason. Whatever it is, you're, you're 10 there or another 20 or whatever it is, ask the question, in what way will this foster and encourage my love for God? We're talking about the, the first and second greatest commandments here. In what way will it foster and encourage my love for God? In what ways will it foster and encourage my love for others? Yeah, apply to the, that kind of list. That's right. Um, there's got to be an intentionality about this. I, I want to do this in order to do that. It, it's not enough just to say, I want to do this. That's not good enough. Not for the Christian. I want to do this in order to do that. In the motivations, again, gratitude and glory. We've been made to make resolutions and goals. We have. But we must make them in accord with our maker. All right, that's the motivations. That's the why. Some things to think about there. Let me push on now to the means. How? How do we go about doing this? Well, I'm going to leave it to you to do the nuts and bolts on this. Okay? Do your Google searches. That kind of stuff. I mean, you can find all kinds of great advice about how to break the big, general, vague targets down to specific and meaningful, you know, accomplishable mini goals and that kind of thing. Okay, fine. Do that. That's worth doing. It's necessary to do. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more, again, heart stuff. Gospel address stuff regarding, okay, for instance, means. How do we do this? With hope. For the Christian... There's no, let me put it this way, there, there's no room, there's no room for the Christian to be going about this kind of thing with pessimism. There's no room for that. Um, that is a, frankly, it's a practical atheism. It's a denial of the goodness of God and a distrust in his power. Right? When you push it, when you push it, for the Christian, it can never be a pessimism. It's got to be realism. A realism that, yes, of course, looks squarely in the face, the reality of the fall, but equally so, the reality of the power of the resurrection, the promises of God, and the presence of His Spirit. And so we move into these endeavors with hope as Christians. The second thing, not just with hope, in terms of how we go about this, but with others. That is to say, we don't take these things on in isolation, which, by the way, 
is likely how you ended up in a situation where you find yourself needing to make a resolution in the first place. Because we are not made to live in isolation. We have been made, hardwired, our spiritual DNA for fellowship, for community. Which means we, we engage in these kinds of things with bringing others alongside, opening up, acknowledging this is, what I'm, this is what I want to do and this is why, opening it up with candor and openness and yes, this dirty little word, accountability. Because we're bringing somebody else into this thing, into this adventure that we're about to walk on with hope, with others closely related to that. Thirdly, with humility. With humility. We never take on this, this new thing, with a sense of our strength, with our wisdom, with our understanding, with our ability, with our perseverance, which I would say, again, has probably a lot to do with how you got yourself into a position of needing to make a resolution in the first place. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke so powerfully to this point. It's, it's, in, it's a quote in your quotes and notes from his letters and papers from prison. It's the third of the three quotes there. I want to read to you. Follow along. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says here. It is so striking. It is so sobering. And he is so right. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. This saying, which is found in a broad variety of lands, does not arise from the brash worldly wisdom of an incorrigible. It instead reveals deep Christian insight. At the beginning of a new year, many people have nothing better to do than to make a list of bad deeds and resolve from now on. How many from now ons have there already been? To begin with better intentions, but they are still stuck in the middle of their paganism. They believe that a good intention already means a new beginning. They believe that on their own they can make a new start whenever they want. But that is an evil illusion. Only God can make a new beginning with people whenever God pleases, but not people with God. Therefore, people cannot make a new beginning at all. They can only pray for one. Where people are on their own and live by their own devices, there is only the old, the past. Only where God is can there be a new beginning. We cannot command God to grant it. We can only pray to God for it. And we can pray only when we realize that we cannot do anything, that we have reached our limit, that someone else must make that new beginning. Oh, Bonhoeffer was so, so right in what he's saying there. It's, it's every bit of as to what James is saying there in James 4. And we read that a few minutes ago. Let's go back to that. And again, I'm not, this, you may have, picked up by now. This is not delving into all the details of this passage and picking it apart. This is more thematic. James 4, let's look at the, again, verses 13 through 17. Listen to what he says. He's not ruling out the idea of making plans, of resolving to do something or to, or to, to um, set out on some new endeavor, but it's rather the critical thing is the spirit in which it is done. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him is sin. 
what James is saying here is that not only are our days not our own, but our days are not even ours to control or manipulate. And to think otherwise is to be non-godly, is to live as though God isn't there, as though it's just us, a zero-sum game, a closed system. We've been made to make these resolutions and plans. However, whenever you want to think about it, we've been made to do such things, but we must do them in a way that is in accord to our maker. Now, just wrapping this up, let me just say this. We are, what we're talking about is simply applying the gospel, the reality of the gospel, to this impulse to making resolutions. Which means that we have to keep in mind all the while our security that we have before him. As I said a moment ago, in a way, it doesn't matter if you never make a resolution, if you never strive in any way to get better or to improve or straighten out. In a way, it doesn't matter if you, because the gospel, the message of the gospel is, that's true. The love of Christ, the love of God in Christ, the grace of God to us in Christ, the finished work of Christ, is such that I mean, we're not talking about a tenuous little string that's fraying away. We're talking about tempered steel, the bond that he has initiated with us and made with us. Such that it doesn't matter if you never do anything, which then makes us what? Want to respond. Want to respond. Put another way, the message of the gospel applied to all of this means... We can be bold to try and free to fail. Bold to try, whatever it is, and free to fail. Some of you know that Jesus is oftentimes referred to as the master storyteller. And those stories that he he told, we refer to as parables. And one of the parables that he told is one that's called, we oftentimes refer to it as the parable of the talents. And you find it in Matthew chapter 25. And the story goes roughly like this. There's this rich landowner. And he, he goes away for a, a period of time on a long journey. But before he goes, he puts these three servants of his in charge of this massive estate. And he tells them that he wants them to work it and to care for it and be stewards of it. Now, the first two do very well at this. They, they invest wisely and double the return in terms of what the master had entrusted to them. But the third servant, the third servant takes what the master had entrusted to him and buries it in the ground and hides it away and does nothing with it the whole time the master is gone. Now, why? Why? Let me turn to Matthew 25 and just so you can read what Jesus says here. Matthew 25, it's striking. There's a lot here in this parable. I just want to point this out. The reason that the third servant gives for doing nothing. He also who had received the one, this is verse 24, Matthew 25, verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Do you see what he's saying? Do you hear what he's saying? This man's um, unwillingness 
to risk, his, his lack of willingness to take a risk was tied to what he perceived to be a lack of love in the master. He knows no security in his standing with the master, so he's afraid. He, he can't then be bold to try. He feels no freedom to fail. But who, my friends, is this master? The one telling the story. Jesus himself. And what has Jesus shown to us in terms of the security of our standing, in terms of the passion, the deep passion of his love for us, that he'll go to any ends, he'll stop at nothing. He's given completely of his body and his blood for us. So, so, whatever you may be thinking regarding resolutions, plans, goals, whatever it may be, whatever it may be in terms of the motivations, think them through. The means, think them through. Know this. Because of his love for you, you can be truly bold to try and free to fail. Let's pray. Lord, there is, again, as we've talked about this morning, much talk about resolutions and goals, and many of us here have a lot of experience with that, and a lot of it's not very good. Um, we give thanks that here again we find the gospel speaking to even this. It tells us that there can be a, a desire to improve because we have nothing to prove. That tells us we can strive to make changes because of the changes that you are already working within in us. Our security and our standing before you is such we need to do nothing ever. But if we do, and when we do, we can be bold in whatever it is we attempt and know that we are free to fail and come to you again and again asking for your forgiveness and help. Guide us, we pray. Stir up within our hearts, our minds, our sanctified imaginations, a holy discontentment with where we are, that we might grow, that we might grow and make us light in this world, in this world that speaks so much of what we're going to do and the striving we're going to make and what we're going to accomplish. May we be lights doing it in a whole different way. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me ask our elders to come forward as we are shifting the focus, but certainly not the time, of our worship here this morning in the celebration of the Supper. Let me read to you these words uh, of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses uh, 23 through 26. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until 
He comes. And of course, we're, we're doing this here at the start of a new year. Now, at the start of a new year, it is, of course, a time of reflection, thinking back over the years past and all that's gone on and the big trends and all that kind of thing. And, and then it's not just a mark of reflection, a time to reflect, but also there's a sense of anticipation too. Thinking about what's coming. People make predictions. People make declarations. What might be, what will be, all this kind of thing. Well, we see some similar themes, reflection and anticipation here in the supper. This sacrament instituted by Jesus himself on the night before his crucifixion. These physical, tangible signs and seals meant to point towards spiritual and eternal realities. Reflection. All that took place that night. The promises that he gave to his disciples then and his disciples now. The washing of their feet. Oh my goodness. What he was uh, signifying there, what he was doing, going to be doing for them and what he was calling for us to do for each other. And then, of course, remembering what was coming that next day in his dying for us. So reflection, but also anticipation. Where the New Testament writers promise us again and again that a day is coming where faith will be sight. And the Emmanuel promise that we have just finished putting so much attention towards here in the Christmas Advent season of God with us comes full comes full, where we really are with Him and He with us. That day is coming. That day is coming, unbroken and unfettered. So with all that in mind, He bids us to reflect and anticipate in this time. Let me read just a little further in what Paul says. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What Paul is saying here is, again, in terms of you could think of it this way, uh, regarding um, reflection and anticipation. If the finished work of Jesus is your only hope, this is for you. If his coming again to make all things right, including you, it's the great longing of your soul. This is for you. This is for you. He's saying here in the, in the warning that this is also gloriously real. This is not fanciful. It's not fictional. What's being uh, signified and typified in all that we have here in these signs and seals is real. So much so it demands reflection. So much so that, that I, I think we can really be bold to say that on the, on the authority of the Apostle Paul, that if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning, for instance, and we're reading the Nicene Creed, and you're, you're hesitant in professing that because you know that's not where you are from in your heart, you're in the right place, geographically speaking, this morning, in terms of a place, a safe place to be thinking about that and wrestling with that. But if that's not where your heart is, then what you need to do is let the bread and cup go by. But don't let this time go by. Ask yourself, wrestle, ask the Lord to help you understand what's going on, what's getting in my way of embracing this, and find someone to talk to so the next time we do this, you'll be in a position to take of that bread and of that cup. The, the apostles also saying those to all of us who are, are professing believers, this is a time to reflect, this is a time to ask myself, not just do I believe this, but am I living in a way that reflects the fact that I believe this? And if I'm not, 
I'm not, if I'm willfully keeping him at arm's length, I need to do business there. I need to repent. And again, let the bread and cup go by so that next time, next time, I'll be ready. I'll be ready. This is so gloriously real. He knows. Our Lord knows us so well. He knows we are spiritual amnesiacs. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, as the old hymn goes. And we need these reminders again and again that we might, in our minds, be refreshed and in our hearts be assured of what it is that he has done for us once and for all. We're going to distribute first uh, the bread. When you're ready, go ahead and eat. When we when we'll distribute the cup, we'd ask you to hold that. We're going to do that together. And those of you who have never done this to, uh, here with us before, let me just quickly explain that they idea behind that is, on the one hand, he meets us one by one by one, every one of us a different story. He knows us so, so intimately well as individuals, but at the same time, at the same time, it is but one hope, one gospel, one Savior who brings us into a family. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these few minutes that we have to celebrate this sacrament, for these tangible signs and seals. We need this more than we know. Uh, we pray that you would convict us of our materialism that makes us think that everything we see is all that there is, but rather we know from your word that there is the spiritual realm, and we need these reminders, have these things impressed upon us, even through these material things that you can use and have given. So we pray that you would do that. Um, Convict us where we need conviction. Comfort us and strengthen us where we need that too, as only you can. And thank you, thank you that we can pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.